Gentlemen, welcome to the Manlyhood Mancast. Today, we're going to go back in time, and we're going to hear from a Vietnam vet. He was a first lieutenant with the 1st Cavalry Division in Vietnam. And he's got some amazing stories and insights for you today. We're going to hear from Robin Bartlett in just a minute. Before we do that, I want to give you guys a chance to win. We're giving away the Black Pearl, which is a knife made just for this, just for this very purpose, to give to you. Uh, it's from Haynes Knives. My friend Travis Haynes down in Florida made this knife with his bare hands. Oh, I mean, he had some tools, but you know what I mean. He made it himself, handmade. Uh, it's it's a gorgeous knife. It feels great in your hand. It is super sharp, uh, and it is gorgeous. It's something that you're going to use. You're going to use it well, and you're going to pass it down to your kids because it's that nice. So if you want to find out more about this, go to manlyhood.com slash contests for your chance to win. You can enter to win for free. If you want to uh, have more chances to win, every chance is a buck. So send me a buck, you'll get another chance. Uh, and we'll enter you in a big fancy spinny roulette wheel, and we'll pick it. Uh, we'll be picking the winner a little bit later in the next season, in Season 7. So you want to get in there and get your chance to win it now. Manlyhood.com slash contests. All right, guys, with that being said, we're going to get into our interview here in just a minute with Robin Bartlett. Robin, so great to have you on the show, man. Thanks for being on with me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'd love to hear about uh, the books that you've written, the work that you do. Uh, so why don't you introduce yourself? Well, my name's Robin Bartlett, and uh, I was a Vietnam veteran. And I've written a book about my experiences uh, in Vietnam. I, I was there from May of 1968 to May 1969, which is the height of the Vietnam War. Uh, more soldiers uh, were in Vietnam at that period of time, and more Americans were killed during that period than at any other point uh, during the war. And uh, I came to write this book, and the title of my book is Vietnam Combat, Firefights, and Writing History. And I came to write this book because uh, in talking with a lot of vets, I found that there were a number of experiences that I had that they did not. Some were kind of horrific, and some were actually very humorous. And so uh, each one of those stories, each one of those events has become a chapter in my book. Um, and I talk at the beginning about um, some of the training that I had uh, in preparation for going to Vietnam. I went through the ROTC program and was commissioned as a second lieutenant. Um, I went through uh, basic officers training um, and uh, airborne paratrooper training and uh, ranger school uh, and then was assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division. I was there for about six months and then I was um, assigned uh, to the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam. They wanted to keep airborne officers in airborne units. So you were, uh, were you jumping in then? <laughs> no, no <laughs> jumping in Vietnam. But um, I made 30 jumps when I was with uh, the 82nd Airborne Division. So we jumped, officers would jump, uh, we had to jump once a month. It was a requirement to earn your jump pay. But um, uh, the preparation at the 82nd Airborne Division was primarily a preparation to, uh, to go to Vietnam, get ready to go to Vietnam. We all knew we were going to go. And I actually flew over to Vietnam with with uh, the majority of officers, they were the majority of us were second lieutenants, 
and uh, went over with a lot of them from the 82nd Airborne Division on orders to the 101st. But when we got there, uh, it was just after the Tet Offensive of 1968. And that Tet Offensive was the, uh, was the incident that caused the American public to really change their overall impression of the war and Walter Cronkite to declare that um, the best we could hope for was a tie. And uh, it, it, it was not a war that we could win. And, and that uh, changed the overall American public opinion on the war, along with a number of other events. And so when I arrived, um, I went to the replacement depot and they told us uh, there had been so many officer casualties as a result of the Tet Offensive that all orders were canceled. And I hung around for about three days trying to adjust to the heat, 105 to 115 degrees daily, taking a lot of showers, and uh, ultimately was assigned to the 1st Cav Division. And, and that turned out to be a very good assignment um, because they had more helicopters in that unit than in all of Vietnam. And the air mobile concept was essentially to uh, bring fresh fighting forces right directly to the enemy as opposed to having them walk on the ground, that they would helicopter them into a landing zone, an LZ, and try to place them as close as possible to the enemy force so that you would have fresh fresh soldiers uh, in a, comb in a fi firefight with the enemy. And I, I made more than 50 combat assaults while I was in Vietnam by helicopter. So a lot of helicopter go, flights. So you would fly on the on the chopper. Were you flying the chopper, or were you in going the into in the chopper? Yeah. Um, and then and you, I would I would lead the helicopter assault when it was my platoon's turn to lead. So there were three line platoons, and we would rotate. So every third time we had a combat assault, a helicopter combat assault, I would be in the lead helicopter. The. Uh, that war strategy in Vietnam was kind of novel at the time. Like they it weren't was. using helicopters a whole lot before that. That's correct. It was uh, it was really a concept, a strategy that was invented specifically at, in Vietnam, and the First Cavalry Division was the one that uh, perfected it. Uh, it was a very interesting uh, process that uh, began uh, with a uh, artillery bombardment of the landing zone. For about five minutes, they really blew it away. And then the landing was supported by two helicopter uh, Cobra gunships, which is just an absolutely formidable weapon uh, with 80, some, some, about 75 rockets and a minigun that fires 3,000 rounds per minute. And then those Cobras would st remain on station to support the landing of, of the troops. And you, you would think that would be impossible for an enemy force to survive, to survive all of that, but they did. Uh, they may have been dug in or whatever, I'm not sure, but uh, often they did, and that's when you encountered a hot LZ. And um, the enemy liked to shoot down the second helicopter. So they'd let the first one come in, it would land, offload, and then they would take out the second helicopter. And then the, the rest of the force would be diverted. They wouldn't want to bring in additional helicopters, especially after one had been shot down and crashed. So the men on the ground the, from those two helicopters would have to fight it out until they could be relieved by, uh, they would 
try to get the troops to an adjacent landing zone. Hmm. But um, <clears throat> that the um, the Cobras were the were the were a fantastic support uh, helicopter. Two pilots, pilot and a gunner. And um, as long as they could see you on the ground and see where your your the the friendlies were, um, you could talk to them on the radio and direct their fire. So, I mean, it seems to me, you know, fighting, you know, the Vietnamese, it was a completely different kind of battle also than what we're used to at that point in history. I mean, you know, they were much more formidable, formidable, I think, than we thought they were going to be. Well, and, and the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong were both extremely well trained. They were masters of night of the night. They owned the night. They were better trained at, at night than we were. They moved only at night. And uh, they knew our tactics. They would watch us during the day. We, we knew that they were watching us. Uh, it was a, on occasion we'd see some of their spotters, but they were well camouflaged, well hidden. And they knew our tactics. Uh, at nighttime, we, we created a night defensive position called an NDP, night defensive position. Dug foxholes, put out claymore mines and trip fire, trip line, trip flares, and um, but they they were incredible at being able to penetrate our lines, disarm our trip flares, uh, and get in close, uh, throw hand grenades and uh, satchel charges. They owned the night. They owned the night. Do you think that? Uh... The fact that they were able to have that advantage. I mean, plus you also have people who are used to being in that environment versus, you know, Nebraska farm boys, <laughs> you know, heading over into the jungle. Um, do you think that that had a lot to do with the number of casualties that we had and then thus the change in perception in, you know, stateside to what was happening there? Uh, not that so much in terms of the change of perception, but uh, realistically, you know, the, the the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese, they they were in it for life. You know, this was a war that that they were there for duration or until they died, one of the two. Whereas, whereas Americans uh, had a 365-day tour. So uh, very soon after you arrived in Vietnam, you were given a short timer calendar. And it was usually a drawing of a naked woman. And it had 365 day squares on, on this drawing of Xerox copy uh, of, of this naked woman. And every day you colored in one of these little squares. They were all numbered, 365 numbers on the squares. And uh, so you started counting down from day one. Uh, and the whole idea was to survive your tour survive your tour whether you were an officer or an enlisted man at that point in time and we're talking about latter part of the war and at the height of the war um the the, the whole attitude i think of and and in my platoon i averaged between 28 and 32 people 32 men 90 percent of them were draftees so th these were these were not career soldiers they they were uh you know 18 I had a few 17-year-olds. I was actually the, se the the second oldest man in my platoon at 22. Hmm. We had one man who was 24. And uh, these were 17, 18, 19-year-olds, a couple of 20s. Uh, and, and 
had been drafted and uh, they they were doing their duty, but they did not wish to be placed uh, at risk unnecessarily. Well, and I, I think most people probably wouldn't want to, but I think even less so when you didn't necessarily choose <laughs> exactly. that career path and that direction yep. for your life. I think you might be a little less likely to, to want to be in harm's way. So I had experienced uh, a number of uh, things that happened to me in Vietnam and in talking with vets, uh, a lot of vets, and I'm, I'm actually the president of the New York, New Jersey chapter of the 1st Cavalry Division. So I, I get an opportunity to talk with a lot of vets. And um, um, I found that I had experienced a number of things that happened to me that, that did not happen to them, unusual mm -hmm. things. Um, and uh, part of the reason, part of the motivation for writing the book was to put these down on paper. Some unusual stories, some of them were horrific and some of them were funny. I, I had a number of very unusual things happen to me too, hum humorous things that happened to me. Well, well, tell me some of those. I'd love to hear. Well, let's start with the funny ones because it's, uh, it's not all combat and, and ambush. Um, we were very concerned about what we called FNGs, effing new guys. And um, <laughs> we, we monitored them. acronyms for everything. <laughs> That's right. FNGs. We monitored them very closely. Uh, they, they also had to acclimatize. It took three weeks to get used to the 105 to 115 degree heat and high humidity. And uh, if we weren't careful, if these guys didn't stay hydrated, they'd be walking along and they would just topple over. Um, so we had to be very cautious of them. Plus, they were squirrely. Uh, it took them several weeks just to kind of settle down and understand what the routine was and how we how we managed the situations. And on on the base camp, when we were pulled base camp perimeter security, it was the FNG's job to take care of latrine duty. And the latrines were wooden um, structures, two holers, as we said. And um, they were screened in to keep the flies out. And there was like a little door underneath. And we would take 55-gallon drums, cut them in half, and you'd have a, a drum underneath, underneath each hole. And so we would give the FNG um, uh, the job, explain to them very carefully, step by step, go to the artillery area, get a 105-millimeter canister, this would be a, the shell casing from the 105 millimeter howitzer, brass, and then go over and fill it with uh, diesel fuel. Take the canister, then go to the latrine, pull out the full can, and put in a fresh can, right? Pretty simple. Pour half of the diesel fuel into one can, and the other half into the other can. And then step back, light a match, and that's how that's how we got rid of the refuse. Except this FNG, when he went to the to get the fuel, the, the they were in big bladders, and the gasoline bladder was right next to the diesel fuel bladder. So he filled the canister with gasoline, actually um, fuel for the air for the helicopters. And he dutifully poured half of it into one can and half of it into the other can. He didn't pull those canisters out very far 
So when he lit the match, it exploded and blew all this shit <laughs> all over the place, all over us, all over him. Oh, no. It also set the latrine on fire, and it burned. You saw men running out of the latrine as fast as they could go. So uh, he was on latrine duty for the rest of the week and uh, helping the engineers to rebuild to rebuild that unit. <laughs> Probably never lived it down either. No, no. He, he had simple, special names for him. Uh <laughs> That's crazy. On on the more horrendous side, or let's say more emotional side, um, the platoon leader was responsible when you had a a, a man killed in action, KIA. Uh, he was responsible for. Uh, the medic would bring him a death card, which was a, a three by five card with a hole punched in it and a piece of string tied to it. And the officer wrote in um, the coordinates where that soldier, as close as possible, where that soldier had been killed. And his name and his rank and his um, his number. And he tied it to the boot along with one dog tag. The other dog tag remained around the neck. We didn't have body bags. So um, we wrapped the man in his poncho. I, I had to go through his pockets to make sure there wasn't anything there that shouldn't be there take out any letters and papers that went back to the battalion uh, personnel officer, the S1. And um, I carried a, a ball of twine because you didn't want the, the ponchos flopping around when the uh, helicopters came in. And I would tie it off uh, at the head and around the waist and around the feet. And my, my men didn't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, understandably, I, I guess maybe there was a degree of superstition you know, might be me. Might be me next. But I, uh, the hardest one was the was the very first one, and that's that's actually the first chapter in my book. And I call that chapter my first worst day in Vietnam, and it was. Mm. It really was. Uh, and unfortunately, I I had to wrap quite a few men in in ponchos, mm. and uh, that that probably was the hardest, m most difficult job I had to do, in, from an okay. emotional point of view. When they were your men, right? When, when they, they were my men, that's right. Um, I think I know that there's a lot of that that doesn't get to just stay there. You know, you come home and it comes home with you. What was you know what was that process like for you? Well, I couldn't allow those kinds of situations and some of the firefights and some of the more horrific things that uh, that happened to me. I couldn't allow those events to affect my decision-making. Couldn't allow it to um, impact uh, the orders that I had to give to my men. I never wanted to put them in harm's way, but there were times if we were ambushed or if we were in a firefight, you had to give orders. They were looking, they would always look to the leader to give orders, right or wrong, make a decision, Give orders. Tell them what to do. The worst thing would be to hug the ground when the bullets were flying overhead and pray. I was plenty scared, but they, they expected decisions. And um, so it, 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 it was critical that um, I keep those emotions 
locked up. And, and the way I describe it is I had a titanium steel trunk in the back of my mind. And I would take those feelings and those emotions and I would just lock them in that trunk. I had no friends. You weren't Officers just, it was advisable not to have friends. We called each other by numbers. My mm. call sign was Foggy Day 1-6. And they called me 1-6. That was my one for first platoon, six for leader. And uh, my platoon sergeant was Foggy Day 1-5. It gives you the idea. The squad leaders were Foggy Day 1-1, 1-2, 1-3. That's, but that's how we referred to each other. No patches, no insignia, no rank, no saluting. No sir. They didn't say sir. And the only way you could recognize that I was an officer was on the, the quarter inch of that elastic band that ran around the top of my helmet, held the uh, camouflage in place. I wrote L.T. Bartlett in, in, in a quarter inch print that was the only way you could tell i was an officer and um i i kept that trunk in the back of my mind for a very very long time um and about interestingly well i don't know if it was so interesting or not but after about 20 years some of those events started to to kind of seep out hmm and I, and I I had daydreams, not nightmares, but daydreams after 20 years. And I, I would I would see the event again in detail. Um, I, I'd see the colors, I'd see the event. Um, and it was really haunting me. It was really bothering me a great deal. I thought I was losing it. So I had a friend who was a psychiatrist. I had helped her. My, my civilian career was in publishing. And I had helped her uh, publish her book. And I had a job that uh, allowed me to do a lot of travel. So I went to see her and I said, well, I'm, I'll take you to dinner, but I want to have a, prof- a, a, a professional meeting with you too. And she gave me a very simple exercise to follow. And I did. And, and um, those, those experiences, those leakages um, diminished. I wouldn't say they completely went away, but they diminished and it was PTSD mm-hmm. but it didn't happen to me until literally 20 years after I had returned I think that a lot of men in your position probably had about that I mean I'm sure that many of them went through it faster or quicker but I think there's something in particular about your generation too where uh that compartmentalization to be able to lock it back in the box. I think there was some, it's a superpower, right? To be able to function in the moment, but then can also be a hindrance later because it takes longer to be able to take it back out and deal with it. And I've seen that with a lot of guys that I know that would be kind of in your, in your shoes. A lot of people that I know where. Well, I, you know, I, it, it changed me dramatically. It made me, you know, steely hard. Um, it, it it took away a lot of my emotion, empathy, feelings. I, I was very fortunate to marry a, a really good woman who uh, kicked me in the butt on a regular basis and uh, taught me how to say I love you and taught me how to hug again and, and uh, reconnected me with empathy for people. And... <clears throat> She, she's always said, your greatest strength is that you are fearless 
And your greatest weakness is that you are fearless. Hmm. And, and some of that is true. Yeah. I think our wives know us pretty well, don't they? <laughs> but it was interesting that this occurred 20 years after the fact, you know, and, yeah. and I know it's the same sort of thing I think as police and firefighters and EMS and even emergency room people have to deal with. And uh, some, some, you know, it happens to them right away, especially police. You know, they, they have to go through a period of kind of coming down off the event. And for others, it just gets locked away for a while, but it doesn't go away. Yeah. And writing the book brought back a lot of it. Not not quite as intensely as the first time, but it brought back a lot. Yeah. Do you think that was kind of therapeutic for you to be able to walk through later that, with a little clearer vision? That was part of my objective in writing the book. I, I had a job that um, I had to uh, long airplane flights. So I would go coast to coast and um, I, I'd whip out my laptop and I'd work on a chapter from East Coast to West. And then I'd work on it from West Coast back to East. And uh, that's how I got the book written, uh, because mm -hmm. I had a family to raise and I, you know, I couldn't devote full time to it. It literally took me 10 years to write that book. And it was done to a great extent as a catharsis. Um, and, and it was amazing to me how much my brain retained, how much detail my brain retained. I, I would be sitting there on the airplane. My favorite author is Stephen King. And he wrote a book called On Writing, which is a great book. It's not one of his horror stories. But in that book, he talks about falling into the computer. I think he says typewriter, but falling into the computer and that's exactly what happened to me i would become so engrossed in the detail of the event that i was writing that i could see it i i could see the colors i i i, I started sweating i'd come away from the event just drained i, I even smelled the smells there were times like i even smelled the smells and like i said it's just amazing how much detail your brain that's in your brain especially in some of those events. Hmm. Yeah. When you you talk about being the, the president of the New York and New Jersey chapter, do you find yourself in a position where, like, I mean, you were in leadership then, you find yourself, and obviously you're in leadership now because you're in that position, do you find yourself able to, to help others or maybe that's part of your mission is helping others through this process? Well, I, I, I wish I could say yes to that, but uh, m m my job is really to find really good speakers and encourage them to come to our unit and talk to the vets. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes that's hard to do. I've had I've had some really good ones, but I've had a few that have been not not so good. And um, uh, the the former president of the unit, I took over from the former president. He still comes to the meetings. And I always sit down with him after at during the lunch, and I said, "Well, what's what's my grade tonight? Well, how did I do?" And he said, oh, "I give you an A minus on today's meeting." And then two <laughs> or three days later, he'll call me and then says, "All right, here are all the things you did wrong." Now he he was an NCO, you know, and I was an officer, so there's still that there's still that little uh, edge to it. And most of the men who are who are in this unit were not officers. They're, well, it's a mix. I, there are some officers, but you know, there was always that that uh, separation between the officers and the non-commissioned officers and the, and the grunts. But I mean, you know, I was a grunt too. I got just as dirty as they did. 
we would go for four to five weeks without changing clothes. We smelled awful. After two to three days, it you just you just got used to it, and you wore the same clothes for four weeks at a time. Um, I ate the same food. I, I endured the same pains. Um, I was a grunt, just with more responsibility. Yeah, I had I had to make some decisions, and sometimes. You know, I tried never to put my men at harm's way, but sometimes that happened. Yeah. Since we're kind of talking about that, that leadership aspect of it, what do you think is – what does it take to lead? Well, it, it, it was a different situation in Vietnam because the leader – often had to make immediate decisions. If you were in a firefight, if you were ambushed, all eyes turned to you for a decision. Right or wrong, make a decision. And um, I, one, of the, one of the smart things I did, and I didn't do too many dumb things, I did do a couple of dumb things, but one of the smart things I did at the very beginning was to sit down with my platoon sergeant and my squad leaders and say, okay, you have the experience. And I want to know what happened to my predecessor, why he didn't make it. And I want to know, you know, I want your advice. And I want to know how how you feel I should run this platoon. And th their primary advice was was be very sensitive to the point man and cover man. Those two men led the unit. They were out there 50 meters in front of me. And I had to trust their intuition. And if, if they felt uncomfortable, there was no birds singing. There were no monkeys screeching. They would call me up to the front. And sometimes they couldn't tell me more than just a feeling that they had that this was uh, not a good situation, not a good area. And my solution to that problem was something called reconnaissance by fire and I would shoot artillery in front of us I would blast away the area that we were about to walk through I shot so much artillery that they ended up putting a budget on me <laughs> I, I could only fire 25 rounds but that was enough and when my men walked through that area they they had more confidence um, and and it, it demonstrated that my, my priority was my men. Yeah. In a, in, and I guess I, I would not have been a terribly um, good commander because in, in a combat situation or in a firefight, if I had a man wounded, seriously wounded, my priority was medevac, get him out of there, save his life, not, not attack the enemy and get body count. Body count was the metric by which commanders were measured. Mm. And body count didn't matter to me. So I, I probably would not have been rated highly as a, a proper infantry commander. I didn't care. Yeah. Lives were more important than body count to me. Yeah. So, so you, I, I think about this a lot because I know that you know, I mean, I was born in 78, so my life was entirely different than what my father went through, what you went through. Um, but I think about when you guys came home, you know, 
it wasn't it wasn't what your fathers would have come home from you know when they came home from world war ii you guys came home to a very different world what was that like well i was fortunate in that i was a regular army officer so i had an additional assignment to go to i was still Mm -hmm. in the army when i came back but when those soldiers landed at travis air force base in california and they bust them to Oakland Army Terminal. They took off their uniforms, and or if they didn't take off their uniforms, they regretted it. Because once they went uh, on their leaves to their homes or went into San Francisco, uh, they had a very, very difficult time. The, 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 the public opinion had changed, and they held the American soldiers responsible for losing the war. And... Um, that's why the, we were not welcomed home. We were not welcomed at all, and it was it was very unfortunate because it, you know we we were obeying orders. We were doing the things that our commanders and president. I mean, right on up the the chain of command that they instructed us to do. So yeah, we it was really the first American war that was lost, mm-hmm. uh, or was tied. Put it that way. A lot of the, a lot of the troops would say, "I don't want to die for a tie. Um, right. I don't want to be the last man to die in Vietnam, and I don't want to die for a tie." But the war, you know, the war was prolonged unnecessarily by our leaders, both military and and our presidents and his advisors. No question. Well, At I, least that's my to, opinion. I have to think that our intention. You know, to stave off the 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 communism, you know what I mean? Like that that concept, I mean, I believe, you know, still kind of people, you know, I have some pretty pink friends who think I'm crazy when I say it, but I don't, I don't think communism is good, you know? So I think like our intentions may have been well, but I, I, I wonder a lot of times, like, was that worth it, you know? Well, the domino theory was uh, something that we were kind of indoctrinated with. But once we got there, um, you, you know, it became so frustrating. I mean, you think about South Vietnam about being the size of California. And so we were fighting four different wars, depending upon the terrain in the state of California. In the north, it was one kind of war. And in, in, in the south, it was boats and fast fast boats. And sometimes you had villages. And, and so... It, it was a unusual situation in that and, and became very frustrating because y- you could chase the enemy right to the border of California, but they could go into Nevada and you couldn't go there. They could go into Oregon and you couldn't go there. They could go into New Mexico. You couldn't follow them. A- and, you know, there were whenever we got into a firefight with them, we always had superior firepower. We had those Cobra helicopters. We had artillery. We had jets coming in, dropping napalm. We even had a bombardment from ships offshore. offshore. Um, so we had always had superior firepower. Um, but th- they could escape, and they were good at it. They were very, very good at it. They could always escape and take their bodies with, take their wounded and killed with them. So even though we know we killed them, we killed a lot of them, we couldn't bring that magic metric to, to bear. We, we'd go out and find blood trails, but no bodies. 
it was it was very frustrating, especially for yeah. leaders who were measured by body count. Mm -hmm. Well, and because of that, they were able to kind of hold on to some some power throughout that. You know, it was yeah, you had soldiers doing what they were doing on the ground, but. They cycled back through at another location well, to come back in and fight again, you know. They they owned the night. Um, hmm. I, I was just amazed at what great night fighters they were, and they always moved at night. Uh, and they were incredibly good at camouflage. We knew that they were always watching us. They knew our strategy. They knew our tactics. We, we would uh, hole up at a night defensive perimeter, NDP, at nighttime, dig foxholes, put out our trip flares and claymores, and and they could penetrate our they could penetrate our perimeter. They would disarm the trip flares. They would turn the claymore mines around and they would they would crawl up and throw hand grenades and um, satchel charges. They owned the night. They were incredibly good night fighters. And then once you once you took them on They'd evaporate, evaporate. <laughs> I don't know how. They just were masters at it. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, I have a lot I of friends, friends who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, you know, I mean, obviously it's a different kind of war, but what advice do you have for those guys who come home and they're, they're processing through the things that they've gone through? What, what kind of advice would you give to one of those guys? Well, you know, we, we 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 have not learned the lessons of history in the United States. We seem to keep repeating those terrible lessons time after time after time. And um, the young soldiers who are returning from uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, they, they saw it. They had their own war. I mean, some of the tactics were different. They had certainly uh, much more technological advances than we did. But it was still boots on the ground that, that you owned the, ter the terrain wherever your boots were. Uh, and and it, if you didn't have grunts on the ground, you didn't own it. Um, I honestly, you know, I have a great deal of sympathy and empathy for them because I think um, th th many of them um, got closer and they had uh, longer deployments we we were constantly looking at that short timer calendar i only got 50 days to go i only got 100 days whatever the number was and um the, the soldiers who fought in afghanistan and iraq um i know they're they're I, i'm not sure what their deployments were uh, but they could be recalled and they made m multiple deployments um and and i think that they they had a more unique situation but there was no camaraderie. It wasn't like you were in a unit that went over and stayed together as, as in World War II, where you had a division that was trained in the United States and then went over uh, as a unit and stayed as a unit. Yes, there were casualties and yes, there were replacements, but there was a camaraderie uh, among those soldiers who belonged to that unit. That didn't happen. And it didn't happen in Afghanistan and Iraq, although it it from what i know it appears that they had a, a higher level of camaraderie uh in in those most recent wars than we had in vietnam yeah when you yeah, were when describing you were being there and not having any friends and i'm sure a lot of that had to do with 
both the being an officer as well as the difference in that war. But that's it sounds a lot different than the stories that you hear of, you know, the band of brothers and the yep. you know, you know, you're not fighting for your country, you're fighting for the brother next to you. But that's a lot harder if you if they only know you by a number, you know. But I I think there was always kind of a bit of a separation between the officers and uh, yeah and the troops as well. Yeah, which and and some of that may even be for good reason as well, you know. But but it does make it a little harder to to process and to work through. Robin, um, if people want to know more about your book and the work that you do, because I know you go and you speak and, and things like that, tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Uh, I have a, a very robust website. It has a lot of information on it. Um, I've got. I've, I've uh, recently produced a couple of nice videos. I did a video on um, uh, courage during a firefight. I did a video on com helicopter combat assaults. Um, I've got a, a gallery of photographs uh, that I brought back with me, combat photographs and artwork. Um, I've, I've written a number of blogs. Uh, on various different topics, and um, uh, the, the people will find it very informative, and there's a, a lot of information about me and a lot of information uh, about my book. And the website is www.robinbartlettauthor.com, and the title of my book is Vietnam Combat, Firefights, and Writing History. Awesome. And I also give a discount. <laughs> you get an autographed copy and a discount. And Perfect. free shipping. What a deal. I undercut yeah, Amazon. A great deal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I love that you are writing first-person history, you know, rather than wait for somebody else to tell the story. You know, like I think that's a pretty manly thing to do. <laughs> well, as long as you understand it's a boots-on-the-ground point of view. Like, it's not even... 10,000 feet. It's on the ground. And and I worried about that because all I could do is tell my stories. And then when I came to the final chapter, I said, well, now I've got to come. I've, I've got to say something on a, on a larger scale, on a, on a gl more global scale. And I basically gave my own personal opinion, which we've kind of touched on today. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the war was prolonged unnecessarily. And, and I give some reasons for that. But um, as long as, um, as there is an understanding that this is mostly a true story, memoir of uh, things that happened to me uh, that did not happen to uh, some of the other vets and some unusual things. And I, I think you can draw some interesting conclusions about leadership and about decision making and about courage and about fear. Um, and, and young men in combat, but, you know, 17, 18, 19-year-old men. Uh, I'll give you an example. My, my platoon sergeant, the platoon sergeant is supposed to be the most experienced and oldest man in the unit. My platoon sergeant uh, was what they called an instant NCO. He went through a, a course at Fort Benning, Georgia of six months and came out as a platoon sergeant. He had his 19th birthday in Vietnam. So he and I had about the same level of experience. But I trusted him because he he was there for my predecessor who didn't make it. And he was he was instructive and helpful. Um 
And my, my platoon sergeant, uh, my squad leaders came to know that uh, uh, protecting my men, looking out for the welfare of my men was my first priority. And, and I, I tried to demonstrate that uh, every day. I still gave them instructions. I still made sure that they were equipped, ready to go, carried the right equipment, did all the proper things, but uh, I looked. Out, I tried to look look out for their welfare. You used the word courage earlier to describe some of what you saw. Do you have any stories to illustrate that? Well, um, you know, John Wayne said it best. Uh, courage is uh, being scared to death and saddling up anyway. Um, courage to me was um, the necessity in a firefight or in an ambush. And I was only ambushed once. And that situation didn't come out very well. But um, we were in a number of firefights. And they're, they're, there's, uh, it's a horrendous experience. It's the same sort of thing I think that police and fire, firefighters uh, go through. Uh, and you don't know for sure, especially if it's at nighttime, you don't know what's going on. It is scarier than hell. Um, for me, courage meant the necessity of making decision, giving orders, right or wrong. And that Ranger School did a lot for me. Ranger School was an insurance policy for Vietnam. The, the Ranger School taught us uh, they took us to the absolute point of exhaustion and hunger because if you didn't make your objective, you didn't get food. I lost 20 pounds uh, going through ranger school. Uh, but at that point of total exhaustion, mental and physical, that's when they put you in charge. So uh, the things that worked for me the most were the fact that I was physically fit, was in the best condition of my life. Uh, I tried very hard not to do stupid things. I listened to my squad leaders and platoon sergeant and, and took, took advantage of their advice. And in a, con, in, in a combat situation, in a firefight, uh, I just reached down deep inside. I'm not sure where it's located, but I just took a deep breath and said, here's what we're going to do. And uh, fortunately, there there were times when there were men who were wounded and killed as a result, but most of us survived. You couldn't afford not to take action. If you, if you failed to take action, if you failed to be courageous, you would be annihilated. And um, the men pretty well figured out what they needed to do as long as they got some direction and it, it made sense to them. And, and I did have very, very good training to help me make those decisions. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, I think about it because, you know, I mean, we need certain degrees of courage in everyday life. Usually somebody's life's not on the line. So it might be a little less needed. You know, it's a different kind of courage to a different degree, but I think we can learn a lot from it. Like, like it almost sounds like the work that you put in up front is helpful. You know, when you learn and you're prepared, then when you need courage, you have some 
some something to back it up. I, I, I'm just trying to learn from it. I, I can see some good things in there. I think that's good. Yeah, I don't have um, a real accurate definition. Uh, I, I just know that uh, that training that I went through prepared me to to do what I had to do. And yeah. there was, frankly, there was never once in Vietnam that I did not feel in control of the situation. I was scared. No, no doubt about that. I was scared to death. There were times I was just shaking in my boots. But I still felt in control. I still felt as if I knew what to do. They, they had kind of programmed that into me to some extent from that training. And um, my men appreciated it. Uh, and they appreciated the fact that, uh, you know, right or wrong, at least I was, I was trying to make decisions and, and take care of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So I like to ask all my guests a few questions, Robin, and uh, I, I really am looking forward to your answers to these. So I think that you'll have, you'll have some good perspective for us. Well, as long as you don't throw me a curveball. Yeah, I'll try not to. <laughs> the first question is this, what does it take to be a man? Well, you know, I've raised three sons. I have to I have to step back from my military experience and I I've raised three sons three very very different individuals uh one of whom is a PhD in history he's a brilliant guy smart as can be you know you don't get a PhD unless you have just read volumes and he got it in history so he's read he's he told me at one time point in time he counted up number of books he read more than 10,000 volumes hmm and I helped him with his dissertation, editing the dissertation. He loves long sentences, so I was very good at shortening some of those sentences. But, but, and then my other two sons are, are as different as can be. And, and I think to be a man uh, and have a family and have children, you learn an awful lot about the importance of family. You learn an awful lot about the importance of helping your your kids up to the point where they go out on their own and while my oldest is incredibly brilliant i have more street smarts than he does <laughs> <laughs> so i often uh, help him with that and my proudest moments are when he comes to me and says how would you handle this situation? How would you, well, I'm, I'm faced with such and such and so-and-so. What would you do on these, or complaining? And, you know, it's wonderful when you are asked for advice. I have learned not to volunteer the advice. Right. That's the best <laughs> advice I can give. Wait for them to ask, but don't volunteer. Especially when it comes to how to raise kids. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I definitely can see that. <laughs> but but I think what it means to be a man is also tied into uh, raising a family and watching your kids grow and helping them to avoid some of the mistakes that, that uh, you've made and giving them um, street smart adva advice. Um, and, and my kids are sm have been very, very smart kids. Um, I, my, one of my favorite stories is... My my one son came home from high school and he says, "I'm having trouble understanding the DNA in uh, chapter in this book." And I said, "I said, well, give me give me the book because DNA hadn't been invented when I was in high school." 
Right. <laughs> Nobody knew what DNA was then. Didn't know. I had to read the chapter. I still can't grasp that. I never did get it. Nah, me either. The you know they would do the genetic thing with the bunnies, and you had like the black bunny and the white bunny, and then all. The, I'm like, I don't know. I guess you just let them mate and see what happens. <laughs> There's apparently a formula now. They use gummy bears, and that makes sense. <laughs> use gummy bears, and then they have you know all the different colors you can get out of the gummy bears. <laughs> so uh, my next question, Robin, and this one gets kind of deep. Uh, I guess it goes way back, and that is. If you could go back in time and talk to the 10-year-old version of yourself, what would you tell him? Of myself? Mm -hmm. Of you. Well, having been raised in a military family, um, we, offer, we, we answered the telephone at home, Colonel Bartlett's quarters, may I help you, sir? That's the way we answered the phone, living on military posts, uh, going to 13 different elementary and middle schools, four high schools, uh, you know, making friends fast and trying to hold on to them and losing them after two years or three. It was, it was very, very difficult. So I would say to myself, um, you know, really work at making friends and establishing that rapport um, because it was too easy just to understand, well, I'm only going to be here for a short period of time, so no point in making friends. But if you don't have friends and relationships, if you don't know how to make those friends and relationships early on, if you're not gregarious, if you're not outgoing, um, it, it, I think it, it, it holds you back. Um, and, and that's one of the things I think uh, happened to me because I became very studious um, uh, uh, lost in my books, uh, and and uh, found it very difficult to to make friends um, mm. because because of the constant moving. And it wasn't until I went to college that I finally, after four, you know, that was the first time in four years that I stayed in one place for four years was going to college. And I I am very close to my college classmates, still very involved with them. So that's. I turned it around for that in that at that period of time. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a similar experience. I wasn't a military brat. I think it's the word they used to describe, <laughs> but I, um, I was bullied pretty bad as a kid. And so I just never trusted any other kids. So I was, it, you know, it was about eighth grade before I started to make friends. And, um, I almost kind of, I'm, I've gotten to the place now where I almost just call everybody my friend. Like, we've had this conversation, so, you know, I'll be referring to you as a friend from now on. So that's just kind of my life now. But, um, but and that has served me well, actually. So uh, I, I try to do that. But as a kid, I didn't, I didn't get it. You know, I was, I was pretty sheltered and it was, it was a, it's a difficult experience for me. Yeah. So, so I can relate to that. Yeah, I, I think if I could go back, I'd probably say something similar. So, yeah, that's a good perspective. Uh, Robin, my next question for you is for the men that are listening today. What is your best advice for them? Learn the lessons of the past. We, we, we're just terrible at learning the lessons of the past. And, and the only way you learn the lessons of the past is you, you read and become familiar with, uh, with what's going on. 
we're so we're so locked into our phones, right? We are so I mean we spend so much time on that. And there's a wealth of information there. But we need to go beyond the the scrolling through Instagram and and the the the, the dog and cat videos. We need to, you know even if you finished your schooling, you need to devote yourself to education, whether it's learning the history or whatever you're passionate about, whatever you're passionate about, to invest yourself in learning, invest yourself in becoming a more well-rounded person. Um, And and I was fortunate in that I I spent most of my civilian career in publishing. And that brought me in touch with with just a wide variety of authors and marketing people and managers and um, and even though there were times I had no idea what the what this because uh, I was in the textbook side of the business, and I would be talking to a mathematician, and I had no idea what he was talking about these various different theories. But you know he put his he he put his pants on the same way I did every day, and we found common ground. And uh, my job was to find out from him and translate what some of the main features are were of his book so that I could communicate that to to the sales representatives that would represent his book. So I was a translator and that meant I had to learn more about my subject. It was a wealth it was it was like a master's degree in in everything. Yeah. <laughs> but it also made me feel very comfortable being able to talk to anybody about any subject because I had interacted with all these college professors teaching courses. Now, I never got greatly in depth, but I learned an awful lot about some of the latest uh, theories that were going on in, in the science and math fields. Those were, believe it or not, that big, even though I was comparative literature major in college, they had me work in the science, math, and engineering so that I would learn those fields and be able to ask. I mean, it was all about asking, just like you're doing right now, asking really good questions. Well, I'm hoping I'm asking good questions. I'm you not are. always best at it. But <clears throat> you are. That's my background in radio that, that <laughs> I think helps me a little bit. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that's really good advice, man. I um, it it sounds a lot like the kind of advice that my dad told me when I was a kid. He said, you know, you can learn something from everybody. So well, and don't stop learning. Been, yeah, don't and stop. I, so learning. I've always been trying to try to do that. So. Yeah, I, I never, I'll never forget that too, because he would be like, "We have to learn something." And before the internet, we'd go to the library and we'd rent, you know, we'd find a book and we'd look it up. And then my dad got really good at Google, <laughs> and I'd call him up. I'd be like, "Dad, how do I do this?" And he would say, "Well, let me let me think about it for a minute." And you know, years later, I found out that he was googling it. Well, I, I, you know, I think you have to have bucket lists, and I think you have to have goals that you continue to work for. And uh, I've been been searching around now that I've completed this one bucket list item of publishing this book. I've been uh, searching around for my next uh, goal and objective, and I think it's, I think I'm going to stay with writing, and um, I, I think I'm going to try to write a fictional account. Uh, obviously, Vietnam and combat is my forte. And I know a great deal about it, but it seems like maybe a fictional account would be an, a good next step to take. 
Yeah, I think so. I I can't wait to read that. I think that'd be awesome. It won't take me ten more years. Yeah, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <Sounds great. laughs> uh, I wonder if it could translate to fantasy, right? So you just take Vietnam and you set it with dragons and knights and you know that same story, right? Just in a different. I mean, not that you have to do that. Just a crazy idea. <laughs> well, I'll keep oh. you posted. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. That'd be awesome. Hey, Robin, hey, Robin, thank you so much for being on the show today, man. I really appreciate your insight. Thank you for having me. It's been great. been great to talk to you. Awesome. You too, my friend. And tell me, tell us, our listeners just one more time where your website is so they can get in touch with you. It's www.robinbartlettauthor.com. If you just Google Robin Bartlett, and you you know there's a, there's a female actor by the name of Robin Bartlett, so she'll pop up. But uh, if you Google, Google Robin Bartlett author, You'll find me right away. Awesome. I'll make sure to link it in the show notes as well. So thank if you're you. listening, you can That'd click through and, and check it out. But thank you again so much. I really appreciate you, friend. It's been a thank pleasure. You. Robin, I know that you hear thanks for your service a lot, but I do really want to thank you for your service. And I want to thank you for taking the time to share these stories with us. I know that for me, hearing your perspective on things helps me understand my own father a little more, helps me understand our country a little more. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share and talk to us today. Guys, if you appreciate and want to know more about what Robin's doing, make sure you check out uh, the link that we've got in the show notes to his, his work. And we really appreciate you guys listening. And I uh, would love to have you in the Manlyhood Man Cave, which is our private Facebook group for men. All you got to do is go on Facebook, type in Manlyhood Man Cave, and then you can request to join. It's for men only. We've got a couple questions to make sure that you qualify. Uh, and if you're a man, that's pretty much how you qualify. So you can enter uh, that group, and we'd love to have you there. We help build each other up and encourage each other. That's what we do. And I've been really proud of the community we've built there, so we'd love to have you. Guys, I appreciate you listening. Thanks for sharing what the work that we're doing with your friends. Let's help spread the word about manlyhood. I love you guys. I care about you, and I'll see you next time.